happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and the United States and the world to the EdTech Situation Room for September the 13th, 2017, episode 65, following yesterday's riveting Apple event in California, which I'm sure we won't mention at all. But my name is Wes Fryer, joining you from Oklahoma City, where we're getting used to some new schedules, and I apologize for being a little bit late. And as always, we're going to be joined by the uh, forest fire smoke dodging Jason Neifer. Jason, what's the, the weather like now? Is it still as bad as it has been? Um, well, today I think is the last day of probably hot summer temperatures, at least um, I, there's a forecast that tonight around midnight it's going to start raining here, and then over the next uh, seven days it's supposed to rain six out of seven days in Missoula. So oh, we're, we're yes, 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 yes. The temperature is going to cool down, which also helps the firefighting efforts um, as oh. well, but I think we're at like 1.2 million acres burned in the state of Montana now. And a lot of the fires are are centered around western Montana. And so Missoula, which is located and nestled into western Montana, is getting smoke from three or so fires in western Montana, plus the fires in Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. So it's been pretty smoky here. But the good news has been that last Saturday, a lot of that smoke lifted. And so we've been under much, much better air quality since the smoke lifted on Saturday. It's it's only dipped into the... um, hazardous for sensitive groups level as opposed to the straight up hazardous or very hazardous, which is where it's been um, a good percentage of the two weeks before that. So we're excited that it seems to be heading in the right direction. Well, that is excellent. Well, when you are not uh, giving weather reports for Missoula d- during, during the day, you're rapidly approaching the more initials behind my name status and uh, I am what else are you up to in Montana um, where I'm in the doctoral program for teaching and learning where I'm focusing on educational technology and I'm currently in the final throes of finishing up a dissertation project which I hope to have done either this semester or maybe the beginning of next semester things are kind of heading forward in the right direction so I, I feel good that it'll get done this school year and then my day job is I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy the state virtual school which is a supplemental program that serves students in uh, 200 plus schools across big sky country. So I work in digital learning um, the day on through. And Wes, what are you doing when you're not, um, I guess, counseling me on smoke? <laughs> so I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School, where we have uh, almost now completely finished our transition to a new mobile device manager. We are not anywhere near one-to-one, but we have about 900 pre-K through 12th grade students, about 160 or 70 faculty and staff, about 130 iPads under management, about 260 iPads now. Um, I can't give you the exact number of PCs, but we are having a continue, a, a busy time to continue serving everybody with, uh, two and a, and a quarter staff, but it is a wonderful place to be and an even better place to be this year since my wife has joined our staff as a third grade teacher and our daughter is in her eighth grade year. And one of the great things about that situation is just being there for sports games and things like that. So we've been able to see a couple of Rachel's volleyball games, saw one, um, yesterday, I guess. And yeah, it's, uh, it's great to get to, be closer together because the last four years she's been downtown um, and 
it's uh it's nice to be carpooling together. So, Jason, I heard there were some people in California at this big like spaceship looking place and they talked about something that's going to cost $1000. That's kind of all I heard. So, is is there anything I need to know about about that or or do we not want to start with that and kind of lead into that? Cuz there was we got to talk about the Equifax hack. I was putting some stuff in. I, I think I'm going to freeze my credit. I mean, this is this right. is serious stuff. Like half of America has has had their social security and then potentially yeah, we got to talk about that stuff. So, I I was tardy to tonight and I've got to put in some links. So, where would you like to start us? We will just pass the proverbial torch to you. Sure. Um, I would say that maybe we could start with the Apple announcements if for no other reason than, um, uh, they're interesting. Um, I'd say that, that the one thing that was most interesting about the answer, well, first let's talk about the announcements. Uh, there were, um, just a few primary products in yesterday's announcement. Uh, we, we could talk about first what was in there. Maybe we could talk about what wasn't in there, which I haven't seen a lot of media on actually, but I have some theories myself of things I would have liked to see. Uh, that weren't announced yesterday, but they started off with the Apple Watch yesterday, which is um, now in its third generation of device. And there's some updates, including the ability to drop an LTE card, so be able to have the watch uh, communicate over cell towers, which means you could effectively bring just the watch with you as opposed to having a watch to tether it to. That is a major advancement in the technology itself. Uh, Android Wear watches have been doing that for um, about a year or so, so it's not groundbreaking. But the one statistic that was talked about yesterday during the keynote at the Apple event in California was that the Apple Watch had a 97% satisfaction rate amongst those that had purchased the item. And what's interesting about that to me is that I obviously don't have an Apple Watch. I wouldn't have anything to pair it to in the first place because I don't use an iPhone. Um, but I do have an Android Wear watch, and it's an I like the Android Wear watch. It's, it's a good piece of hardware, but... I would say I wore it fairly religiously for about four months and then, you know, every other day for another couple months. And now it's it comes out of the drawer once every two weeks or so. Um, and I still like the device, but it hasn't become a go-to. And yet I see more people with Apple Watches than I do uh, by a factor of, of, of 25 times as many than I see wearing Android Wear watches. And I think that even though it's probably a small product in the overall Apple line, they probably have some good reasons to stick with it because of the high customer satisfaction amongst the Apple faithful. So they did make some advancements to it, um, uh, more powerful processor, more storage, uh, the LTE option for those that want to go sans phone completely and focus entirely on the watch. But it's clear to me that Apple will be sticking with this particular product line. So I know we've talked about wearables in the past, but Wes, I know you're not currently an Apple Watch owner. Is there anything tempting about yesterday's announcement to say that now is the time for a Friar Apple Watch? There is. I think the statistic of being able to stream 40 million songs to your wrist was pretty staggering. Um, and I, I'm still holding out for FaceTime on the watch. I, I think that's going to be my, my holdout. I, I want the Dick Tracy, you know, let me, let me talk, talk to you and see you on my watch. But it was impressive. They, they said they displaced Rolex as the world's number one watch. I don't know what measurement that was. And of course, even if you have a Rolex that's genuine, I mean, you're not, you're not buying that regularly and you're not having this, you know, desire and push to refresh, you know, and, and so I don't, I don't know how all that, stacks up but it definitely i mean 
the way that we've seen Apple focus on the fitness um, niche, they had a really compelling ad about that. I don't know if I watched about three fourths of the keynote and um, I'm not really a big fan of the game demos and, you know, but, but that the video they showed for the watch in terms of, of the, the things that it's done, the people that have been able to make calls in emergency circumstances pinned in their car, the athletes that have been alerted and family have been alerted uh, about, you know, heart rate or things that were going on that, that saved lives. Um, there was a child who I think was monitoring blood sugar and I mean, it's amazing. It is amazing. And I think that it's refreshing to hear those stories and to, to keep in mind. And I'm in sometimes a bit of a interestingly kind of, uh, I'll, I'll pick my words carefully, but, those aren't necessarily the stories that I'm surrounded with as much. Sometimes I'm hearing a lot more, and this can be from parents as well, about negatives of screen time and social media and all that kind of stuff. So it's just, it's really refreshing to hear those kinds of stories. So has it pushed me over the edge? No. Am I closer on the edge of my seat? Absolutely. Um, and it is interesting too, to see them, you know, keeping those other generations available, right? I think not only last, the second generation, but the first generation, you know, it's even available for less. So I'm definitely wanting to be fit and exercise and healthy and all that good stuff. And that fit, you know, instead of a sedentary, stay in front of your screen and don't move, you know, the Apple Watch is is about activity and it's about biofeedback and awareness of of how much you are being ambulatory and moving around and doing doing active stuff. So I, I love that. You know, and I also I'll say this too. Apple has always been masterful storytellers with media, right? Any Apple video, especially one that they're going to show during a keynote, but, but anyone is going to be amazing. So, and I'll also say that if you, if you watch any part of the keynote, watch the opening part, because the way in which they have Steve jobs, you know, talking about, you know, Apple and the way that they had the room dark and, and then, you know, Tim cook made it without, you know, an emotional crack in his voice, but you could tell just, you know, how, uh, being there in the Steve Jobs Theater and all that was was really uh, a special thing. So Apple's still got mojo, baby. I'm I'm here to say, and uh, I want I want I'll talk in my Geeks of the Week about today at Apple Teacher Tuesdays field trips and stuff like that. Because <clears throat> really, actually, after the Steve Jobs stuff, even before um, Apple Watch, they talked Apple retail, and I think that's a fascinating thing that they're wanting to do in terms of not calling them stores, but town halls and and the ways in which they are wanting these to be kind of meccas of learning and sharing and collaboration. Um, and I'm pretty excited about that. Okay. Well, let's go to round two, uh, new Apple TV at 4k. Um, they spent more time on this announcement than I would have assumed, but I could only really discern, two big advantages of the 4K Apple TV. First, that's in 4K, and second, that they're going to be doing some sort of HDR, high dynamic range um, video overlay that you can utilize that makes those especially high-definition screens crisper. Um, so to start with, Wes, I, I believe you have a third-generation Apple TV, or I'm sorry, a new-generation Apple TV at home with an app. 
Definitely. And we've rolled out a lot of those at school as well. We were fortunate to start our transition to, you know, being uh, untethered and wireless with airplay mirroring uh, when the fourth generation was available. So, you know, we've, we've had a third generation in the family, but fourth generation is um, a game changer because of the app store. I'm not going to be getting a new one because we don't have a 4K TV and I don't anticipate we're going to get one anytime soon. But I think it was notable from the content standpoint, right? Because Apple is a content creator and, um, you know, here in the EdTech situation room, we will, of course, I'm, you know, kind of, uh, fall over ourselves when there are Google events and Apple events and all kinds of, of, of flashy new things that are announced. And we'll probably, you know, get pretty excited about those, but, um, it's a great day for content creators. And so it's a reminder of that with Apple having such an eye to content, which they in some cases are licensing, but also the way in which they are um, working incrementally, iteratively, not like, oh, it's a revolution today, but over time for cord cutters like me, we've cut the cord now for cable, or actually we had direct TV last, you know, the last six years. Um, I think that the ways they've got the live TV there and the ways they're working on courting sports because, you know, sports right. has been one of the biggest things. And so full disclosure, I hope Cox doesn't come sue me or give me a bill. But, you know, my parents in Kansas have a, you know, full cable package with with Cox. And so sometimes to catch an ESPN, uh, especially during bowl season, right? But the other kinds of football games, you know, I've logged in with their login and we've streamed a video. They Their system hasn't checked an IP address to say, hmm, why are these people logging in from Oklahoma when they, you know, subscribe to us up in Kansas? Um, and maybe that it's kind of like family sharing. You know, it's not an officially condoned thing by Cox. But the point is, in order to get access to that live sport sporting event, you know, you, you have to either be paying a commercial cable subscription or you, you need to know someone who will share their, their login with you. So I think we're going to continue to see that advance. Um, some people have wondered why they waited so long and all this. And it's, it's totally the, the content providers, right? They did announce that if you bought any Apple movies in the older and, 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 and less quality, high quality resolution that you'll automatically upgrade for free to the 4k, um, so anyway, that's that'll have some folks excited, but um, we're we're kind of a Netflix family, and then Plex. We have my sister and family in Kansas City on Google Fiber, who have a very robust library and share that with us, you know, via Plex. And so we're not buying as many movies, but I think this is not a revolution today, but it's the continuing. The continuing revolution, which when you look at the graphs of, of cable subscription and how important ESPN and sports have been to cable packages, you know, I, I haven't done this reading in the last couple of weeks, but you know, we're, we're going to reach a point where the whole, when you look at professional sports and what holds all of that up, it's largely television contracts and advertising. Uh, which is, is yes, driven by ticket sales, but, te- you know, television is huge and the subscriptions that the cable companies play. And so this is the continuing march of disruptive technology with uh, Apple, you know, inserting itself and make, making a viable player that 
is not only going to be able to let you play movies, but it's going to let you, you know, connect to, to live content and then also apps and things that other people have developed. So what is your uh, streaming media situation look like at your house, Jason? And did this whole event, Apple TV, watch everything? Did, did, did you move at all in, in your plans or short, you know, short term goals for what you might purchase from Apple? Um, it didn't really because I'm, I'm not in the market for an iPhone, which is obviously the thing we'll talk about next. But, um, we, um, here we're, we're Netflix. Um, Amazon Prime Video is a secondary provider for us. And then I also have what I like the term you used, a robust Plex server here at home that has a, a very long running, um, media library in it that I've been, you know, uh, curating for, you know, 15 years now. So that is something that, um, uh, it's been a great addition for us here at home, um, the Plex library, but we haven't had cable in 10 years. Uh, a long time ago, my wife and I made an agreement that I could, if I, if I was willing to get rid of cable, I could spend up to that amount every month on media and, um, found that it, I did was even close to using that amount. And now with various services like Hulu and, um, the PBS app on Apple TV and uh, many of the other kind of one-off apps that exist in that ecosystem, we don't really need cable to be able to, to access, generally speaking, whatever we want to. But um, I'm not a 4K guy. Um, I have a 720p TV sitting in my living room, a little 32-inch TV. I've, I used to have a larger TV at one point that, that died on us. Um, we were an early adopter to a big flat screen TV and we just haven't got around or had the need to replace it. So that's been good enough for me. But I do think that Apple's focus on television and I, I did not, wasn't able to catch this part of the keynote. So I don't know if they're still referring to Apple TV as a, as a project, um, and a hobby, which is something that, that, uh, up until very recently they were labeling that effort that, but, um, it's, it's a compelling uh, architecture and especially now that you can download apps, it's, it's, it's extensible in a way that's never been before. And I think it's a really great uh, piece. So yeah, the a- Apple TV is a, a good addition. And I do a, a, a school ed tech connection. If, if anybody listening to the show knows someone who is at a school or her students at a school that have developed an app for Apple TV or, you know, I mean, the app store, we probably, we probably heard those stories and those maybe, you know, sooner to, or easier to find, but that'd be, that'd be pretty interesting. Um, you know, breaking into the Apple ecosystem marketplace is, <clears throat> in my experience, a more challenging thing than, than Android. I actually did use an app builder to, you know, put something up on Google Play a while back that probably is still there. I probably should take it down, but anyway, that would, that would be interesting because, because, the ability to create these algorithms, you know, f- filter the web, be able to, pro- you know, provide your content, um, you know, of course, as well as games and other kinds of things. Um, coding, it's important. We need kids to be to be doing it and we need to be exploring the ways in which, um, you know, we have some agency over our media landscape. Right. We live in a world where it's filled with choices and it's an attention economy. And there's probably not going to be statistically a huge number of of folks and people in schools who are doing that kind of thing. But I think that's what a, what a great thing to have your club take up or, or to even find out if kids are doing those kinds of things on their own, you know, and what kinds of things are they learning? Um, because this is a job of the present and a job of the future is being able to, to, uh, work in the new media entertainment industry of which the cord cutters and, you know, folks creating original content for YouTube, Netflix, Hulu, 
Apple TV, Amazon, all of that stuff. Hey, what happened to the Amazon app? Because Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, and Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, had allegedly gotten together in the spring. Not allegedly, like this was totally all over the news. And Cook had evidently gone right to him to talk about Amazon Prime on the Apple TV. So the rumor was we were going to be seeing that app and and you would not have to get a fire stick or you know chromecast or something else to to watch your or or mirror right because that's what you can do now with an apple tv is you can mirror and and use your amazon video app and play but you could natively do it no mention of that right i didn't see anything about that so i don't know what happened there Yep, Mac Rumors reported on August 29th that the um, Apple or the Amazon Prime video app for Apple TV will likely not be ready for launch for the September event. So I think they're still working on it, and it looks like that's still imminent and in play. And that's an interesting dynamic too, right, because Apple wants to favor their content, but if they want to become – you know, a platform. This has always been an issue with Apple, right? With iTunes, you, you right. know, and iTunes content, et cetera. You know, are you going to be exclusive to the Apple platform and the ecosystem? Or are you going to allow for other kinds of things? And of course they've allowed for Netflix and, and Hulu and HBO and these kind of things. And I think that's a great thing for consumers. Um, from a cultural literacy standpoint, it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, what series and what shows are now among, you know, teens and young adults and, and, you know, how has that, that kind of thing changed? We live in a very fractured media environment where, you know, we, we don't just, just have the NBC, ABC, CBS and everybody's watching Wild Kingdom or Hee Haw or whatever on Sunday night or, you know, whatever choices were in the seventies. It's, it's an incredible media landscape. So there's implications that that has for us, you know, as a society and as a, as a culture with, with shared experiences and things like that. And, uh, I think it's good, but it's certainly different. So how about that phone? Yeah, without further ado, I think it's time for phones. So uh, this was the worst kept uh, or worst kept secret in, in probably Apple history. Actually, there was a lot of leaks that preceded the Apple announcements on Tuesday. But Apple released not one, not two, but three new phones. Um, and something I want to talk about after we're done here is kind of the betrayal of Jobs' original vision that there would be four consumer products, uh, one tablet, one phone, one desktop, one laptop. And suddenly now Apple is in the many, 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 many device business, which you know you could argue is, is good or bad news. But Apple announced the release of two iPhone 8s. There's the iPhone 8, which is the successor to the iPhone 7. It's smaller. It's 4.7 inches. Um, it comes in 64 gigabyte and 256 gigabyte capacities. Um, and what's really interesting at the, at, about this is they kind of downplay the, um, the platform itself, even in their advertising on their website. Um, they call it, uh, like their, their best tagline is it's the next generation of iPhones, right? So it's like, here's the next one, right? Like, as opposed to, you know, revolutionary, wonderful, awesome, awesome, awesome. And then, of course, there's the Plus model, which is a larger model, 5.5-inch screen. And both of these, I would say, are are predictable. They have the so-called retina displays. Um, They are um, uh, uh, 
in many ways, like the iPhone 7, there isn't a whole lot of evolution here. They come with a button. Uh, the headphone jack remains missing in the iPhone 8 model. And if you're looking for just the next one of this and like the form factor, then it's, it's, I'm sure, pretty decent and, and, and or awesome. So, um, that of course buries the lead a little bit because in addition to the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 8, S, I'm sorry, 8 Plus, they're also offering something they're referring to as iPhone 10. And there's actually a bit of debate yesterday um, about whether it was the iPhone 10 or iPhone X. And of course, the correct answer to that mirrors the, is it OS 10 or OS X? And it's OS 10 is the answer to that question for all you Mac nerds out there. And um, the reason why that's uh, interesting is because that phone has so many technological advancements to it that it really leaves, in my mind, the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus pretty dramatically behind. So I guess first, anything interesting for you in the iPhone 8 or 8 Plus announcement, Wes? You know, wireless charging, I think, is a pretty big deal. Uh, I like the fact, and I'm going to borrow from the, the committed pod, podcast is a weekly tech show I listen to and, and just listen to that today and agree with, with, with several of the things that they talked about. One of which was, Hey, Apple didn't try to invent a new standard, right? Uh, and, and Apple doesn't always, right? They've, they've embraced all kinds of things and they also pioneer things and are pushing things, USB-C, you know, being an example. But wireless charging, we've got already IKEA and I think they said Belkin and some other places. And is it called Ch- Che? It's the uh, Chinese word for wind, I think. Anyway, I'm not saying that right. It's not Che. I should look it up. Um, but it's the, it's the standard, I think, for the, the wireless charging. So. I'm, I think that is exciting. Um, but facial recognition, when that's an X. So anyway, that there are definitely things I'm, I'm pretty excited about on the, on the X side. Did they say why they're not going with nine? I'm thinking it has to do with 10 years as well, right? This is 10 years from 2007 when original iPhone was announced, but did anybody say or did you hear why we're not having an iOS nine? I didn't hear, but I think your explanation is, is the likely answer. Um, and, and that's where, you know, we should definitely talk about but or the 10 next but the the bottom line is is that i think if this had been the only phone released and maybe that's why they put all of their creative efforts into releasing kind of the super phone the iphone 10 because if if this had been the extent of their announcements i think it would have been met with a pretty dramatic yawn from even the apple faithful right like there's was a lot of pressure around this apple event to announce something new and interesting and to be honest, it's it's not a new Apple TV with 4K. It's not a third generation of an Apple Watch. It's not an iPhone 8. All of their creative juice seemed to be spilled into this iPhone 10. So let's skip over the boring 8. Um, and I still laugh to me. These are beautiful phones. I'm sure they're wonderful to use. But in comparison to the um, iPhone 10, it's it's really no comparison. So Apple also announced a brand new phone that they themselves describe as as intended to be a revolutionary advancement in cell phone technology. And the iPhone 10 is a, um, it's almost like, you know, what, what things were sitting in Apple phone labs, right? Like what things were, were, you know, maybe a year or two off. And it feels like someone walked into the labs and said, we're going to put together something amazing 
we want you to fast track as many of these technological advances as you can now so we can, you know, evolve uh, the phone model pretty quickly. And and what's interesting about this is that it, it seems to be so incredibly uh, well received by at least the, the, the tech journalism committee or tech journalism community that like even Android journalists are are sitting mouth, you know, uh, gaped open saying that this is going to you know, put a major blow to the high-end Android market. But let's talk about this for a second. So first, it's a 5.8-inch screen, which is the largest screen that Apple has put into a phone thus far. It's, it, and, and for those that have never used a 6-inch or a 5.7-inch Android phone, it is an appreciable difference over 4.7 or even 5.2 or 5.5. Like that extra 0.2 to uh, 0.5 inches, it, it does make a really big difference in, in hand feel, like it, it, in, in your hand. Um, it comes in 64 gigabyte or 256 gigabyte denominations of, 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 of storage. Uh, the 256, well, the fact that the 64 megabyte is, or sorry, gigabyte is the, the base model is very telling of, of 2017, but also the fact that they go ahead and jump to one model that's 256 gigabytes, that's also an appreciable amount of memory as well. Um, there's a lot of little things um, that are, um, you know, a part of this new phone. The first is that it has a nearly bezel-less screen, which means the screen goes from corner to corner with very little bezel, with the exception of a little tiny cutout that exists on the top of the screen where there's the front-facing camera and a number of sensors. And um, that's already been getting a lot of kind of interesting eyebrow raising um, as, as part of that process. They also announced that they would be utilizing a new chip called the A11 chip. And they actually spent, and I, and I only, I kind of fast forwarded through some of this, but I read some of the, the coverage afterwards that this is a major advancement, a major step forward in chip technology for Apple. And there's lots of interesting things about it being faster and, and a better um, user experience with a 64-bit architecture. But the other thing that has been talked about quite a bit is something referred to as their neural engine, which we can talk about separately in a moment, which is a, a clear play on their augmented reality process that Apple's been kind of discussing and, and, and leaking internally. Um, but the phone, by every stretch of the imagination, looks like it is premium at every point. Uh, beautiful OLED screen, um, uh, uh, very bright colors. They re-engineered uh, uh, a lot of the processes in the iPhone to achieve an even finer look. Um, glass on both sides, uh, beautiful um, hardware uh Process, but the starting price for this phone is 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 nine hundred ninety nine dollars, and if you want the two fifty six model, I believe that goes up to like eleven hundred fifty, if my memory serves me correctly. So I guess I'd start with here, Wes. Um, you mentioned it earlier. You're impressed with the new phone? I am, and one thing I feel like this is a milestone for. If you've been getting the the clown shoe phone or whatever you want to call the really large one, especially in higher denominations of gigabyte storage, you know, you, you could push a thousand dollars, but here we've got a starting phone that thousand dollars. So, you know, 10 years after iPhone announcement in 2007, it seems a bit ironic that we're, we're talking about purchasing phones that cost what laptops, you know, still do and, and can cost, you know, and then when it comes to a lot of the laptops at school, I'm, I'm using my wife's uh, Toshiba Chromebook, which, which has been kind of put put to the side now, but was her primary machine for the last three years. You know, we're talking. I think maybe we paid two fifty for it. It might have it might have pushed three hundred. But 
like a third or less the, you know, the cost of that phone. So I just, I kind of feel like that, that's a milestone. And we haven't negotiated that as far as seeing what this looks like for our family. But again, to get back to a school slant on this, one of the, one of the, my big thoughts, of course, well, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about facial recognition and surveillance society and that kind of thing a little bit. Um, but we're never going to be able to keep up in school with, you know, the latest smartphones and the digital divide is real and we teach at different schools and different situations. But the ways in which the capability of the smartphone have advanced in recent years should, I think, certainly mean that in some classes, at least and in some circumstances, you know, we should be allowing students to have their phones out and utilizing those to, you know, capture me- media, to be able to edit video, Um you know, the photography stuff on the phone is, is stunning. I have not used a seven. Our son has, has a seven, but you know, those capabilities are amazing. And the statistic that stood out the most for me was the, the probability that thumbprint recognition versus facial recognition was going to have a mistake. And the statistic they, they used was a one in 50,000 chance that your thumbprint is not going to be accurate as far as doing your banking and the ways that banks have bought into this. And that the facial recognition, you know, is one in 1 million, I think is what they said. And they had masks. This is kind of creepy of like Hollywood, you know, trying to show how people wouldn't be able to fake that. But, you know, the ways that it's infrared, it just it really struck me how amazing it is that this incredibly advanced, like the one of the most highly, certainly on a consumer level, you know, crafted pieces of technology, you know, is very is so quickly in the hands of so many people and. You know, I, I think that the face recognition stuff is, 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 um, is good and, and I think it's exciting, but it's another sign of the surveillance society that we live in, right? And the ways in which, you know, your phone is going to iteratively, you know, know you, uh, on the committee, they were joking that, you know, at some point it's going to be saying, well, you may want to be cutting back on those carbs, not having that extra drink tonight, you know, because it's going to be able to, detect, you know, subtle changes that, that we're having in our faces. Um, yeah. So I don't know, but it's, I think I'm going to be tempted because when we look at having a phone, it's going to be in our family for a while, right? As it moves down the, the food chain or whatever of the, the dominoes of people inheriting it, it's going to be very tempting to, <clears throat> to get a 10 for my wife and to, you know, especially from a photography standpoint, right? I remember the iPhone four and just, I mean, I'm, I was just blown away. The high dynamic range, you know, app, that's still one of my favorites, Pro HDR. So, um, but it's, uh, my how quickly normal changes, right? Who would have thought you were going to spend a thousand dollars for a phone? I mean, I, I pulled out old pictures from 2007 when I was in San Francisco for Macworld and saw Steve Jobs on the stage at Moscone Center and, you know, I had a flip phone that AT&T provided with me on my belt and I had the thousand, it was probably like a $1,200 retail camcorder, you know, with a, with a digital eight or maybe it was a mini DV tape with the tape. My, how quickly things change. Well, the thing that I would also point out 
so maybe in some of the, the deeper things. Uh, so the A11 is the new Apple design chip that will be in the, the uh, iPhone 10. And the, they talked about this a bit during the keynote, but it has something referred to as a neural engine, which is a part of this A11 processor. And the, the neural engine is a series of hardware features in the A11 chip that allows certain kinds of, um, like software hardware integration that most people assume is a huge augmented uh, reality play. And it's, it's, it's been a, a not very well kept secret that Apple has not been uh, super into the artificial intelligence, or I'm sorry, the um, um, virtual reality space as much as they've been into the augmented reality space. Right. And so the idea here is that the phone itself, while you may not see a lot of these features in the iPhone 10 right now, sometime in the next six to 12 months, that phone would be the center of an augmented reality play that Apple is going to start pushing forward. And in fact, the tech journals are only starting to kind of unwind what they think the timeline might be for this. And they mentioned some hints towards that in the keynote itself, but there is hardware, including um, audio and video processing uh, capability that has been designed from scratch by Apple and integrated to the A11 chip that most people think that will lead to new and other features in the iPhone arena sometime in the next year. But what's really interesting is just like uh, the last couple of phones from iPhone, the chip sitting in the iPhone and for the, that matter, the iPads as well is so much more powerful than what's required to be, you know, uh, to power the, the modern day, you know, OS, or I'm sorry, iOS 10, the upcoming iOS 11, even the most intensive applications, which are mostly game applications that tend to tax iPhones and iPads the most, the A11 chip is so overwhelmingly powerful compared to the needs of of 99.9% of applications sitting in the App Store that obviously the phone is going to end up doing something more at some point. So I think that's probably more or less a wait-and-see sort of situation, but it is really interesting that they did provide an extraordinarily powerful chip in this OS X phone. Yep, I I agree. And um, it's... Apple is continuing to revolutionize. I mean, I, I think everybody wants to talk about them losing their mojo, but um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's exciting to see what's happening. It's what we're talking about in terms of the the processor having more than it needs. I mean, we've reached it's all it's kind of like peak oil, maybe I don't know peak peak processor needs, you know, like with laptops and stuff, like, do you really need more? I mean, we're talking about that at school when people are asking for laptops, like, what are you doing? Are you doing intense video? Okay, you're not, so probably you need a browser and, you know, maybe you're going to need an actual Windows machine or a Mac, depending upon special software that you're running, but it's um, the baseline of computing, you know, has continued to go up, and and so now you wonder about all that excess Excess processing power. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty interesting to think about what that's going to do as far as AI. I'll, here's something I haven't heard anybody say and I just was remembering it. I don't know. And I didn't see the whole keynote. I saw about three fourths of it. I don't know that we heard him talk a lot about privacy because, you know, that was something that Apple was talking about really differentiating themselves and setting themselves apart from Google and your information and things like that. And they were kind of going to use that as a, as a play of really differentiating themselves in the marketplace. 
Absolutely. Anyway, uh, we, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, if we if we don't move on, we probably won't get to the hack at all. So we got to say a few words about that. But go go ahead sure. with some more some some more. One, one last thing related to this, um, I did throw in an article in the show notes, which by the way, our show notes are available at edtechsr.com, where we have all of our links every week that we talk about. So you can go and read a little more from the folks that originated uh, these thoughts and and, and and news comments. But uh, nine to five Google uh, reported Ben Shun yesterday uh, uh, released a, a a post that said basically, well, the headline is Apple's latest iPhone chipset blows away every Android device, and that's a little depressing. And they go on to look at the A11 chip and start to put it through some some uh, benchmarks um, on so-called Geekbench, which is a, a cross-platform uh, benchmarking software. And basically, the iPhone 10 is twice as fast as the fastest Android chip available. And you just don't see those kind of differentials um much anymore. The products released in the same year that are both considered to be high-end, one devils the speed of the other. And so just something interesting to think about that um, it's it, just like Apple has kept, you know, Android driving to innovation and, and, and in return as well, that Android has also driven Apple to innovation as well. I think a gauntlet really was thrown down yesterday um, by the folks at Apple. So I vote we do a little um, uh, speed dating round or there's going to be other words for, you know, quick uh, where just, you know, grab grab an article, you know, say say a couple sentences about it and we can we can pop back and forth for a little bit. Does that sound OK? Sounds great. Okay, um, I just dropped this one in from the register. Dolphins inspire ultrasonic attacks that pawn smartphones, cars, and digital assistants. Um, you had put the the uh, topic this week in, in justified paranoia, so I think that fits under this. This is from the register on September seventh, two thousand seventeen, and what it's saying. A few years ago, you, we heard about kids having these ringtones that adults couldn't hear because they were too high frequency, and this is saying that you know there's a potential um, attack, and it's actually called dolphin attack and i think this is a theoretical thing i don't know that it's in the wild but it's a way that ultrasonic commands can be sent to voice activated systems you know in order to initiate things um yeah i don't know still haven't made that jump um to the 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 google home or other other device flipping it back to you uh, the BBC News reported on September 12th that uh, governments uh, in the West are releasing security briefings related to hospital syringe pumps that are apparently prone to hacking. The pumps are made by a, a company called Smith's Medical and that there is apparently a chance, although there's some debate about how high of a chance there is, that someone could gain unauthorized access to the pump and, and impact the intended operation of the device. Uh, the threat is so significant that the United States Department of Homeland Security released a warning about the, the pumps and the hackability of them. So we definitely live um, in technologically interesting times. Back to U.S. Uh, I'll just drop this one in. We've got a few different things about the Equifax hack. Uh, this one is Equifax security breach. Leaks personal information of 143 million U.S. consumers, and this was in Gadget on September 7th. And this, you know, very well, there's an article, I think we had it a while back about Sweden, where they essentially had, you know, all of their equivalent, like, SEAL teams, people that were under, um, 
you know, whatever judicial protection, witness protection programs and all the specific things about, you know, their infrastructure that terrorists would want to want. It was, is terrible. It was a huge hack. But as far as the United States, I mean, uh, over 143, 150 Americans, it's like probably 50% of, of people and, uh, in the United States, uh, you can go in and put in your, I think, last name and the last six digits of your social security number if you'd like to trust Equifax and find out if you were affected most likely i i did and and i have been probably affected by that um there was been some controversy this week about not signing up for their service because part of what they had at one point was a clause that would uh, make you agree to not be a party to a class action lawsuit if one gets filed against equifax that you would opt out because you've you know signed this thing so yeah the equifax hack Speaking of hacks, um, Wired reports today on the 13th September 2017 that there is apparently a new hack aimed at Bluetooth devices, which can be pushed onto you even if you have modern-day Bluetooth hardware backed by modern-day Bluetooth stack software. And their advice is you should consider turning off your Bluetooth on your phone or other device when not in use. And apparently Bluetooth has been the target of many vulnerabilities uh, in this accelerating in the last two or three years and people are saying the next major hack will be uh, via Bluetooth. And so um, I would find that hard to do, to be honest, because so many things in my life talk to my phone via Bluetooth, but security researchers are now advising that you should consider turning Bluetooth off if you're not using it. Back to the Equifax topics, um, several different articles there, but the Kim Commando article from September 7th, uh, what to do about the Equifax breach, and then the September 11th, one essential step to prevent identity theft. You know, because sometimes these articles and things we talk about, especially with regard to security, sounds like, you know, the sky is falling and we can't do anything about it. Uh, monitoring your credit, monitoring your credit cards, making sure that you are working with a bank that has a very good fraud monitoring um you know, set up where they're, they're going to call you and notify you and cancel cards, et cetera. But putting, doing one of two things to your credit, either putting a fraud alert, which will for, I think, three months make the companies who want to run a credit report or uh, someone wants to establish credit, you have to be called, but that only works for three months or take the step of a credit freeze. And I've really been debating this and just had a conversation with a family member this week who has had their credit free frozen for the last three years. Uh, each of the three major credit companies will issue you a password or a PIN number, which you can then use to unfreeze your credit. And this family member I talked to had been able to get a new credit card that they wanted for a trip and, you know, unfreeze it for three days and then, and then refreeze it. And we're going to do that. So, um, it does seem a bit like the sky is falling and we just continue to hear about, you know, hacks, hacks, hacks. So that was a good article giving you practical advice. And, you know, I'd be interested to know for anybody listening out there if they, what what steps and actions that they're taking and if, if they're doing that, because that is a fairly dramatic thing to do um, to freeze your credit. And I'll throw in one last article um, from Wired. Uh, this is also from today. 23andMe has announced that they are starting to dig through the data collected as part of their consumer service, the 23andMe DNA analysis service that you can pay, I think it's $99 for and then $199 for. And the idea is that they're going to start looking um, through that data in an attempt to find a Parkinson's cure. 
Um, and what's interesting about that to me is first, you know, there has been a lot of hand wringing over 23andMe and data privacy practices and the utility of such a service and that are you in exchange for a relatively small amount of money and, um, you know, a loose privacy pledge, you know, are you giving away data that you perhaps shouldn't be? But I do think that part of what's really interesting um, about uh, the entire 23andMe experiment is that you know, the more data they have, the more they could probably find out some very interesting pieces from that. And as an example of this, you know, Parkinson's disease, which, you know, affects, you know, a million Americans, um, uh, could ultimately find some sort of, of, of pathway or pattern that's not been seeable before because they've been looking at Parkinson's at the micro level, the individual patient level, whereas if they can take broader strokes based on genetic analysis of you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, maybe tens of millions of people, they might be able to find some patterns that can spark new research towards a cure. So um, that's a big ethics and privacy debate that is beyond the scope of the few minutes we have left for tonight, but it's an interesting development on the part of the 23 in the experiment. Before Geeks of the Week, just one more to ask you about, because you, you dropped it in Recode September 13th, the inside story of how Netflix transitioned to digital video after seeing the power of YouTube. Any quick comments on that one? Uh, that is based on a book that is written by, and I can't remember what the title of the gentleman is, but he's a uh, someone at a uh, higher up at YouTube, um, uh, the chief business officer at YouTube. And he's Steampunk, Steampunk's YouTube and the Rebels Remaking Media is the name of the book. And I have put this in my Amazon uh, uh, Kindle queue because I was so tempted by this particular excerpt. But really interesting uh, uh, talk back and forth about Netflix, which was very much in the DVD business in 2003, 4, and 5, and their transition towards digital video, which obviously led to a further revolution of the way we consume and watch television here in 2017. But they were largely inspired by YouTube's story and YouTube's ability to offer streaming services for free to end users, obviously advertised and supported in, in YouTube itself and, and, and can be kind of a controversial topic for, for creators. But um, I thought it was interesting that the folks um, at Netflix, particularly uh, Reed Hastings, uh, the CEO and other technical folks there thought that there'd be something there they could work with based on the popularity and the, the quick expansion of YouTube. And so, um, you know, YouTube changed so many things about the way we consume media. And for and it's not just, you know, putting media in the hands of, of, of creators who otherwise wouldn't have a channel or a voice. It also changed the way that commercial media was delivered as well. So, you know, shout out to the good people at YouTube and, and Netflix. Absolutely. It just makes me think of the um, early 2000s, and, and I was at the College of Education at Texas Tech, and we were having kids, you know, record themselves with, with um, you know, teaching and, and wanting people to watch it and how hard it was and, you know, QuickTime plugins and streaming servers. And, and then there was this company, YouTube, and it was like, what? Who's going to do that? Is that going to take off? And, you know, now we live in this day where any of us at any time can, you know, take the device out of our pocket and record something and, and put it into global distribution and a yeah, a lot of the, I would say the vast majority of content that my teen daughters consume is YouTube content. It's, it's also Netflix. It's also Plex, but you know, I would say YouTube is the number one source of media. And I think we are still grappling in schools with making a shift and recognizing that print is no longer the dominant communication media. We've got 
other forms of multimedia. And in order to be fully literate and a full participant in the 21st century, you need to not only be a savvy consumer, but also a savvy creator and a savvy filterer of the deluge of content and information options that are present all around us. Absolutely. So, Jason, do you have a geek of the week tonight? Yeah, um, I'm sharing a tool that um, I, you know, I, I'm not a standard user of anything, and, and to be frank, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and guess that that neither is is, is Wes. So we we tend to do things that you know maybe are a little more complex because we're geeks and we like to geek things up a little bit. But one of the things that that's a critical part of my day job, supporting thousands of teachers and students across the state of Montana as as part of the state virtual school in Montana, is the ability to to screen record whether it's single screenshot that I can end and send an email or a screen recorded video so I can show how something works, try to capture something that's interesting. And um, my go-to tool for that um, on the Mac and PC is Snagit. Snagit is a uh, wonderful program, very functional. Um, you can oftentimes get it on sale for well under $50, and it's a great overall tool that, that's wonderful for screencasting. But sometimes the ability to record a video and then save it and then attach it to an email, for example, is is a, is a little too much. The files can be big. Um, sometimes I need something quicker and, and, and a little less onerous from an email standpoint. So there's a wonderful tool that's available for free called Record It, Recorded.co. And what it does is that on a Mac or PC, it does t- take a screen capture, uh, a video, if you will, but it also allows you to download it as an animated GIF. And what's really wonderful about that is, is I can attach it to an email and it's, it's relatively small compared to a video and it can oftentimes show, you know, click here, then click here with relative ease. And so for me, I don't, uh, I keep this on every PC and Mac that I use. I don't use it all the time for screen recording, but when I need a quick screen record to attach to an email, it's a really wonderful tool. There's a pro version available. I've never had a need for it on either the PC or Mac side, but recorded, which is at recorded.co, wonderful small application that allows you to take quick, quick screencasts, turn them into animated GIFs, attach them to an email, and they even host them on a website that you can send a link to. So that's recorded.co. Awesome. And uh, my gig of the week is a, a shout out to the Apple store where I actually was tonight. One of the things that <clears throat> I'm not able to repair myself are uh, Apple keyboard keys that come off and are pretty tricky to get on. And one of the things I love about the new setup and the new Apple stores, if you're fortunate to live in an area where you have access to one, is that you don't have to set up uh, an advance appointment. You can walk in and they keep, you know, time in there for you to, to get in. So I got in like 10 minutes and during the keynote this week, yesterday, they talked initially about today at Apple and just the way that Apple is reinventing themselves. And here on our show back on May 10th for episode 51, and I think actually we had talked, we'd had it in episode 50, but maybe then talked about it in 51, um, shared the, an Apple Insider article from April 25th, Apple to launch today at Apple retail sessions in late May. Well, they're here. And, uh, among other things, uh, and I've got this as a, as a geek of the week link too, they have a teacher Tuesdays. And so depending upon your Apple store and, and how, um, much the creator in charge of that is, is, is sort of taking the bull by the horns, 
here in Oklahoma City, they're not doing it every Tuesday, but they're doing, you know, several a month, it sounds like. Um, they're doing specific sessions for teachers to be able to come, and you can sign up and register. Um, I've just registered for the one next week that is about GarageBand and creating. And one of the things that is challenging about not just probably Apple technology, but other technology today is how do you discover the new features and then how do you decide whether or not you want to, you know, retrain your brain and your workflow to take advantage of these new swipes or these new presses or keyboard shortcuts or whatever, you know, the, um, the, the combinations are. So I find, of course, podcasts are a great way to learn about that and video sometimes is too, but it can also be really cool to have a face to face opportunity to do that. And so I think that's pretty cool. And it's just really interesting in our postmodern society where experience is so valued to see uh, companies, you know, completely reinventing their face in terms of McDonald's with the Mac Cafe. We see Kentucky Fried Chicken, if you've got that brand, you know, Taco Bell. Um, and some of these have knocked down their buildings and built from scratch. Others have, you know, done big redesigns. But Apple is doing a huge one and really, you know, wanting to encourage people to come hang out and learn. Uh, they're bringing local artists in in some areas, larger uh, areas, and there's the potential for them to, you know, bring bring teachers and educators in as well. So there's also an Apple field trip, uh, which doesn't, just sound like here, come look at the, the Apple tech, but there's different things with digital storytelling, uh, and other kinds of themes. I'm really excited at, at some of the sketch noting and the digital drawing. And again, to have a chance to see and hear from someone who is a professional who is really into that kind of thing, show their tricks and their techniques and, and apps and stuff like that. So if you happen to be in an area where there is an Apple store, you can go to, uh, I think it's just apple.com slash today, and then you actually want to probably Google uh, Teacher Tuesdays. Um, it's a longer URL, but you can find that readily from uh, from from Google. It is off the Apple website, and you can also look for Apple field trips. So, Jason, where can folks find you, and where have you been been writing lately? What does your pace, by the way, look like in terms of, of blogging and other kinds of media production outside of our Wednesday night show? Um, I try to tweet uh, 10 to 15 articles a week that I'm reading, um, and, and part of it's because I think that uh, there's so much being created, especially in the educational technology space. There are, you know, hundreds of fairly active ed tech blogs. There's um, hundreds of writers that, that publish in places like Medium that all have interesting things to say, and I think that, that my contribution to the kind of curation of that is to try to tweet out, you know, 10 to 15 articles a week as part of my Twitter account. Um, I am not as frequent of a blogger at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, which is a blog.ncc.org, but now that my dissertation is starting to wrap up, I've got about 10 or so posts that are about two-thirds of the way through that I want to start finishing off and releasing um, uh, to the public. But uh, the kinds of things that I'm working on right now, um, other than my dissertation, um, one of them is related to educational research and the need to balance research-based approaches with a culture of reading and responding to the actual research behind people's claims. Um, one of the things that, that I'm starting to notice uh, uh, more frequently, which I thought it was pretty frequently 10 years ago, it's even more now, that a lot of people seem pretty consumed about research-based strategies, but they spend very little time looking at the quality of the research that they're citing or, or what people that they're bringing in and paying to bring in are, are citing. And so um, I'm working on an article, um, which will probably end up being a blog post, 
blog post, or I might throw it up on Medium since it's got, it's got less than less technology to talk about, about the need to build kind of a research consumption environment in your school to be able to know what researchers are actually saying and not relying on people regurgitating that to you in a professional development presentation. So um, the other article I'm working on is uh, the six applications that every power user must have on their phone to be productive. And part of that has been my own trial and error about which applications I need to make my phone a real powerhouse, especially when I'm remote working or traveling. And so I've got a blog post uh, kind of been waiting for that. And I've been also been working on NCCE's uh, Chromebook list, which is a list we released in August that shows a vetted set of tools that you can utilize in the web-based Chromebook environment that I've actually gotten a lot of really great feedback on. We had a great initial response when we released it in early August, and we're now um, updating that about once a week. Uh, we'll probably put out an official notice of, of an official update here pretty soon, but that's a project I'm also working on that I'm really proud of. So blog.ncc.org, and I'm available on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. What about you, Wes? What a shame that there's just so much free time that, that Jason's just staring at his hands, wondering what he should do. Uh, I am uh, blogging periodically at speedofcreativity.org, where I've posted over 6,000 posts since 2003. I used to blog daily, but now I'm kind of lucky to get one out per week. But I'm also sharing on Twitter, and I would say that a highlight of this week was the start of our STEAM studio. I collaborate with the wonderful Megan Thompson, our elementary art teacher, and we are doing playful puppets and so we introduce kids to using puppets and using weird voices and green screen and a shadow box with you know making the shapes in front of the lights and uh, we just had a great time yesterday and so you can follow that twitter feed or yeah that that twitter account at cassidy stem which is c-a-s-a-d-y s-t-e-m an infrequently used twitter channel relative to my w fryer channel but nonetheless a place where we are sharing some of the things that we are creating and making so as jason said this is the edtech situation room you can find our links at edtechsr.com slash links we didn't have any live viewers tonight but we sometimes do in fact we usually are joined by several folks and we uh, appreciate that and the chat that we sometimes have in the chat room we would love to hear from you and hope that you will share EdTech SR, wherever you happen to be listening. Let us know. Reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, let us know if you disagree with us or if there's some things that we need to take a look at. You can use the hashtag EdTechSR. Uh, you can use the Twitter handle or just go ahead and, and tag Jason or I in your tweet. So until next time, we're going to be doing a wonderful dance to celebrate the rain in Montana, the end of the fires, we hope. And, uh, yeah, it'd be nice if the hurricane season would be, uh, over for the Caribbean and Gulf, Gulf states, but it's interesting time. So until next time, stay safe and stay savvy, everyone. Good night.